I knew I was a leader way back in the fourth grade when I gave James a test after showing him how to use the Dewey Decimal System. He was in the first grade. Even at the age of 10, I instinctively understood the importance of performance measures. James told his mom about me and reported me to the principal the next day, and I've never gotten over that. Forty years later, I'm still trying to figure out how to stretch employees, not get in trouble, determine the perfect performance measure, and how to manage bossy bosses. I wanted to do this podcast to place the human side of leadership right in the middle of the room. I am Dr. Don Emmerich, and this is Leadership Uncensored. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Leadership Uncensored. It's been a few weeks since our last podcast, but I've been a little busy. Just presented my TEDx Jacksonville presentation. Needless to say, it was nerve wracking, inspirational, and it was great. And then I have also been sitting on this special guest that we have today and waiting for the right time to not only record, but to introduce you to Lyndia Wilson. And I know that it probably felt a little creepy that I was like Facebook stalking you a little bit and um, reached out to you that way. But I'm just thrilled to have Lyndia here. So Lyndia, just say hi to everyone. And then I will talk about who you are and why you are with me today. Hi, and uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. I read about Lyndia through a newspaper article, actually, that kind of really talked a little bit about her story. And then I was very intrigued to learn a little bit more about her. And you're going to learn a little bit more about her work. Lyndia uh, has a bachelor's degree in secondary education. Uh, She has a master's in health education. What's so amazing about her background and why I wanted her on this podcast is Lindy and I are both public health champions and, and, um, and she has such an amazing story. So Lindy, you've been in public health for, oh my gosh, over 30 years. You've mm-hmm. been with Spokane Health District. You just recently retired, but you've been with the health district for 30. You just retired after 30 years. Yeah. And 20 of those 30 years, you were in a leadership role there. You are known nationally for... Uh, being a national presenter and a a thought leader. You've gotten several awards because of your collaboration and your engagement in the community and your engagement within your own organization. And you've been a winning public health champion at all levels. Um, So a pretty successful career, huh? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I love public health and I would love to share that story. So what is your, so you've been in leadership for a long time. What, tell me more about your, your style, your philosophy. Like, what do you believe in? Well, just kind of give you a little background on why I kind of moved into public health. Um, so I grew up in a very conservative, strong Republican family in Montana, a rural town with little diversity, actually no diversity. Um, but both my parents were uh, educators. They were teachers. And they strongly encouraged us to go to college. 
So my generation, <laughs> women became teachers, secretaries, um, nurses. And um, I went to Montana State University and uh, became a teacher. I did that for a very short time. And I realized that I needed something else. I didn't fit into that conservative women do the same thing um, being a teacher. And so I actually left Montana and went to Las Vegas. So <laughs> a Montana girl moving to Las Vegas. <laughs> but wow. I uh, worked with an aunt down there and um, started to explore different careers. And it wasn't a showgirl or a casino dealer either. <laughs> well, that would have been an amazing story. Yeah. So I worked on my master's degree in health education. And um, I really didn't know what I was going to do with that. But I started teaching for the Nevada State Cooperative Extension. And then I moved in and found a job at the Nevada State Health Department. And I was their first public health educator. And um, we worked out of Carson City there, and they really didn't know what to do with me. So they sent me to every conference that there was nationally, and I was the health department's representative. Huh. And so in that role, you know, you have to do a lot of networking and relationship building and really putting yourself out there and introducing yourself. And I think that's where my leadership skills started and I started evolving. I started getting more confidence in myself and becoming um, just more cultured, becoming from that background of such a small little town, no diversity, no culture. Um, it really started uh, developing me. Um, I moved to Spokane in the early 90s and um, there happened to be a local public health uh, agency position open as a public health educator. And I just found public health fit my values and my work ethics. Um, politically, too, um, I was not a conservative, and um, that was a hard thing for my dad. He thinks public <laughs> health ruined me, but I think public health saved me because it really was those kindred spirits and those people that really believe things that I did also. Um, my job did evolve into management, and I stayed there because of the challenges of public health. I thrived on new challenges, new issues coming, having to develop programs and, and do something about them. And so I loved those challenges. Originally, I was going to stay there for maybe two years, go do something else. And nope, I, I just kept uh, working on different things there. Um, I started working a lot on uh, community issues and working with our health officer, like on communicable disease outbreaks, or we take on a community issue around like homelessness, big mm. topic. And that's the, the work that energized me, that community work, um, just working with people, trying to get them to actually act on something. And I think that's where my skills of facilitation and collaboration really started because there was so many groups that I'd be on that just never got to action, never got to really putting something in place and making an impact on the issue that they were working on. 
And that really bothered me. So I really thought, you know, there's got to be a way to do these collaborations that actually has an impact. Um, so another thing that really influenced my leadership was after the 9-11 events mm. and public health started to be trained in the incident command structure. And that was very new to public health in our emergency response, but it really was a structure that helped us with how to manage an event and really do better communication within our organization. So since I was overseeing the emergency response programs and the communicable disease programs, I ended up often being the instant commander. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning, that role was scary. You know, it was really um, a lot of pressure and feeling like I had the world on my shoulders. You know, I went through H1N1 influenza outbreak. We went through this huge windstorm um, and electric outage in our community where we had 250,000 people without electricity. Mm. And then most recently, of course, COVID-19 and that pandemic. And, um, but that taught me so much about what leadership is and what it isn't mm. and how you lead an event and get people to buy in and follow you. Um, and I have to say over my 30 years, I had two great administrators. They believed in me. They um, sent me to the Northwest Public Health Leadership Institute. Mm -hmm. They sent me to the National Public Health Leadership Institute. And they just really were mentors and advocates for me. And one was male and one was female. And that was important, too, for me mm -hmm. to have a mentor that was a female um, coming from that conservative family. So um, I would say the last two years of my public health career was probably the hardest. And um, I can talk a little bit more about that in, in a little bit. Um, my leadership philosophy really is that um, my job is to empower and support the staff that are doing the work. I believe that they should have the authority to make decisions and only when they um, are having a struggle or are not able to get their work done would they elevate it to a higher level. Um, having a relationship with staff built on respect if their expertise is essential. You have mm -hmm. to have that respect. I felt that my job was to do that strategic planning, that visionary piece, helping with the direction of the agency, and then really to support the staff with the resources to help make that happen and get those things done. Um, staff should feel comfortable coming to a leader and giving their opinions, their perspectives, even disagreements. So if you're not going down the right path or if they think that there's another way to go, they should feel comfortable to be able to do that. And Liddy, could I, let, me, let me just say, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I thought it would be timely to just say that everything that we talk about on Leadership Uncensored is transferable. It is not just a public health thing. I mean, everything, I'm listening to you and I'm going, well, yeah, that should be in the corporate setting and that should be in the nonprofit setting and that should be in the small business setting. Like everything that you're saying yes. is a thousand percent transferable to any place. Leadership 
attributes or leadership attributes. Absolutely. Obviously, obviously the environment is a little different. The pushes and the pulls and the pressures and the politics and that kind of thing are a little different. But mm-hmm. leadership attributes are the same no matter where you are. And so I just want to remind mm-hmm. my listeners that don't tune out because we're talking about public health. Right. Stay tuned in and listen. Lean in and listen to these nuggets that Lindia is talking about. They're incredible. Keep going. Yeah. And, and just to kind of follow on that, I believe that the soft skills of leadership are more important than the technical or the content area. I'm clapping. The listeners can't see me, but I'm <laughs> clapping. Hooray for that nugget. Yes. Yeah. Um, I also believe that, you know, you need to measure progress and you need to hold staff accountable and the agency accountable Um, You continually adjust and change as needed, but it's all done in a very respectful manner. So some of the lessons that I was thinking through of leadership, um, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses Mm -hmm. and we're all good at some things and not others. And, you know, I think I'm pretty good about strategic planning, but I don't want to get in the detail weeds of the technical stuff. I want other staff to be able to do that piece. Mm -hmm. One mentor taught me that with any problem, the answer is in the room. You don't have to have the answer for everything. I love that. Can you say that again? Yeah. Say that again. With any problem, the answer is in the room. So if you Mm. have the right people sitting around the table with all of their expertise and you bring a problem to them or you have a discussion that that you're doing, you as a group can come up with the solutions with all of the expertise that's there. A lot of times leaders think they have to have all the answers or they have to know exactly what to do. And because you can't be all and know everything, that can't happen. Mm-hmm. And you won't make good decisions if you if you rely on that. So um, The other lesson I really learned is that um, you can never give enough communication. Mm -hmm. Even when you think you've done a great job and you're sending all kinds of information in a variety of ways, it's never enough. And after you've communicated on what's happening, how it's being done and why it's being done, communicate more. (laughs) And, you know, I, I, think back to different, you know, projects and stuff. And I think, I just did such a great job of communicating. And then somebody would say, but I never heard about it or something. So that is one of the biggest things that leaders, leaders have to do is communicate, communicate, communicate. You know, you remind me of, um, I agree. And, and I often um, would always tell my staff, you're going to really get sick and tired of hearing from me because I intentionally over-communicate. I would rather over-communicate and you go like, oh God, here she comes again. Yeah. I'd rather have that than go, I don't know what's going on. What, you know, do you know what's going on? No, I don't know what's going on. That's like the worst. Yeah. And then just something recently. Um, so I teach, I teach a master's level class at a local university here. And um, my students like this one class, my students were like, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't understand the assignment. I don't understand. I mean, they really kept saying it. And it wasn't just one student that was saying it. And so I just was like, oh my God, what am I, did I, what, what am I not doing right? And, um, and I just, you know, it's just those little reminders. I'm just so glad again, like the students 
were felt safe mm-hmm. that they could tell their teacher like we don't know what the hell you're saying so can you just stop and re-explain and and so it was just very helpful that but you're absolutely right communication is just so important and so uh, yeah i just um thank you for emphasizing that because yeah. it is really key and it is that soft skill that most leaders want to have and sometimes they really struggle with it yeah yeah and you know as we know um collaboration work is very difficult hard work and um the whole communication that has to happen with collaboration is the same thing you always have new people that show up and um so you've got to kind of reiterate what are you doing why are you doing it what is your vision and just continue that um communication channel for for even uh, community work. And I was going to just give another kind of little strategy that I had learned is that, um, you know, in any type of group setting, and if you really watch or observe the dynamics, you can learn a lot from that. So a strategy that I learned was that, you know, pretend you're up on the balcony and you're looking down on a group and you're watching the interactions and you're seeing the body language as a group and who's talking the most and who's responding. And that technique really helped me start really knowing what's happening in a group Mm. and being aware of the um, people who are checking out, people who are on board, people who haven't bought into the idea. And you can use that technique with your staff, you know, with community groups, um, with your own boss, <laughs> and really just be more of an observer. And I think that also helps you be a better listener, which is a really good skill to hone in on. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the books that I've used over the years is probably, it'll probably date me. <laughs> <laughs> I have really used Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yes, yes, yes. Very, and, very great book. Yeah. Everyone should have it. Everyone should have it. And the other one is Death by Meaning. And That's a good one, too. It is. And it's, you know, people think that it's about, you know, you shouldn't have meetings, but it's opposite of that. It's yeah. really using the right strategies, right types of meetings for mm-hmm. what you're trying to accomplish and then being very strategic with them. So here's a really great connection to our public health experiences. If you're an accredited public health department, one of the things that you have to have in place is this quality improvement, quality assurance process. That meeting efficiency could be worked into that. Yes, totally. Through your through your huddles, like your little 15 minute huddles at the beginning of the week, work week, so that you're not spending another hour on a Monday or hour and a half going, what are we going to do this week? Right? Yeah. So it's just a really great connection. If you are a public health person listening to this, um, you know, that's a nice little tie in to that book. And the instant command structure also is based on efficiency through briefings, Um, using longer meetings for uh, operational strategic planning, all of that. So it really fit with that book also. Another book I've used, um, which has helped me a lot with staff issues, is called FYI, For Your Improvement. Um, Michael Lombardo is the author of that. And it's brilliant. It is such a good book. 
it is solution oriented, but let's say you have a staff that's a procrastinator. You can go to the procrastinator section and it actually has uh, things that you can uh, give this person to get them over procrastination. And um, it tells you kind of why that person is a procrastinator. And so you can kind of work on their strengths to bring that out and solve that problem. It's incredible. It's about three inches thick, <laughs> but it, it, it's a really good book. Leadership is hard. Engagement is hard. Uh, change management is hard because all of that requires an investment of your time. Absolutely. Right? You know, we're pulled in so many different directions. And so having that personal focus, that human-centered focus on your staff does require you to place them a priority and not the other stuff that really do pull you, which oftentimes that's what gets cut short is that's your people. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, and I love, I, I don't know anything about that book, but I, um, I will definitely look that up. But as soon as you were talking, it just made me think, oh, that takes a lot of time. And, and that's, that's why leadership is hard. It's not, that's it right. Takes, it takes your time to engage with your staff and put them first. And a lot of times in leadership, you know, we do these staff assessments, you know, whether it's Myers-Briggs or the latest one is kind of this strengths finder um, assessment. Those are all great. But as leaders, you have to use the information. You have to incorporate it. You have to follow up with it you, or else why do them? Correct. And that's, again, something that kind of falls off because it's hard work and it takes time. So, Lindia, we're going to let's I'm going to. um Let's be real brutally honest here. I think that is great background. I think that you're absolutely special, but you know, that's not why you're here. <laughs> I, I hunted you down because you made the news. And when you retired from Spokane Health District, things changed in your organization. Um, the culture that you talked about, how you had two really great leaders and while you were there and you loved how they invested in you, but, but something changed and there was a leadership change that occurred. Mm -hmm. And that was a very different style of leadership. Not only did we have, did you have a change in a, in a leadership and culture, but you also had the pandemic that was falling on top of that. And mm -hmm. You retired and you went on notice. I mean, you, you tell me about the letter that put you in the news. <laughs> Yeah. So we did get a new administrator right at the beginning of that pandemic. And um, uh, <laughs> see, it, it became very tough. So uh, I started a kind of intervening between her and staff because of that type of management style. Um, she uh, was very derogatory to staff. She uh, would hold meetings with staff and not tell them what it was about, which is a very intimidating method. Um, in meetings with her and I, she was pretty good with me, but she talked a lot about other staff and would put them down and 
you know, it was just like she'd only been there three, four months and she hadn't even gotten to know any of the staff. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there were so many things that happened within such a short period of time. And I worked with her for about 20 months and I was trying to figure out how to work with her. I was trying to figure out how best to get the staff to be able to work with her. And I think the last six months of my career, I held more counseling sessions with managers Mm -hmm. and staff of how to work with the new administrator. Mm -hmm. And so when I left, I just felt devastated for the staff that were left behind because they were crumbling. Um, They were melting, you know, tears, um, counseling, they were taking sick leave. Uh, they were leaving the agency, not because they wanted to, but because Mm -hmm. they couldn't work with her. The thing with public health, and I'm sure it's in a lot of careers is you find they're passionate staff that love their job Mm -hmm. and they want that to be their long-term career. But when you are constantly in this negative, hostile environment, um, they have to decide, can they stay in that career or do for their own health, do they have to have to leave? So, yeah, I wrote a five page letter (laughs) (laughs) and it outlined basically the behaviors of this individual. And it's it's those soft skills. It was in immaturity. It was um, derogatory. It was this toxic environment that staff just couldn't live in. Mm -hmm. And so I sent the letter to the Board of Health. I sent it to some newspapers and it gave it gave examples, concrete examples, so they couldn't ignore it. Well, I think actually one of the authors said that you brought receipts. Just like, okay, if you want to read this letter, just know that Lydia brought receipts. She has proof and it's detailed. Yeah, exactly. And you would think that the Board of Health then would do something. And they did hold a special meeting um, about it, but they basically came out and said, oh, this letter is just from a disgruntled staff and she's the best administrator we've ever had. And they've been supporting her. Well, in addition to that, one of the things that, you know, you you kind of connected and brought to light in your letter, you know, you had a beloved medical director that was fired. Yes. And he had been there for how long prior to this administrator coming in? Um, so he had been on our board for about eight years before he was hired as our health officer. And I want to say five years that he had been there. And he was fired. Yeah. Right in the middle of the pandemic, October, 2020. Mm. And, you know, even if he was not, you know, we're all got the strengths and weaknesses, even if there was things that he wasn't good at in the middle of a pandemic is not the time to do a change like that. Right. And she never had done a performance plan on him. She had never given him any discussions about things that she didn't like or wanted to do better. It was just, you're gone. And she didn't even have a backup to him, which in public health, you have to have a medical license to operate under. 
And without that medical license, all of our clinical um, mm -hmm. procedures have to stop. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was really drawn to your story. I have lots of things going on in my head. <laughs> it's really drawn to your story, number one, because of your courage to do that and standing up for your staff, even though you had already retired, you could have gone away and started traveling the United States, you know, in your camper. You could have just said, hey, I've done my 30 years, I'm out, but you didn't. You just mm -hmm. could not stand it anymore and you needed to do something. And I just was very drawn to that very courageous move. And I really just want to engage you and, um, and just say thank you for your courage. Uh, and I also think that I wanted to bring you on to this podcast because I had a very similar situation with a very toxic, very bullying leader. Um, and I stepped down after only five months in my executive role mm -hmm. at a very large um, public health system. And, but I was not in a position to stand up. In fact, they did a very personal and public shaming effort against me, which pretty much um, disrupted my longstanding career. But I think that what was important here is that I would see articles about how there was this mass exodus of public health leaders because of the external politics and because in it, and I'm going, oh, you all need to look inside because it's not, people are not leaving just because of the external pressures. I know that I've spoken to several who left because of the very thing that you're talking about, mm -hmm. the very mm -hmm. thing that happened in my situation where this bully style authoritative leadership, when we talk about the great resignation that's happening right now, it's not because people are getting federal checks. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. Right. People are moving and going on to find companies that make purpose and inclusion and belonging a part of their value. That's right. That's where they're going to. And so let me ask you this. Would you have retired when you did? I have been asked that many times and um, I, you know, it's hindsight, of course, but I believe I would have stayed on at least through the worst of the pandemic. Mm. Um, I really felt like I kind of, you know, left my people and um, I just have such a heart for them that uh, they're working so hard through this pandemic and they love what they do and they really want to do a good job. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of behavior there um, is just so disheartening for me. So I think I would have, I think I would have stayed on if she hadn't been there. Well, and I, and I think that there's, you know, this, I, I think I don't know you very well, but just our interactions and listen, we just spent talking about your, your long tenured history in this work. You don't, you don't do 30, 40 years of this work and then just be done with it. Like right. it's a part of you. It's always going to be a part of you. Yeah. And I, I think that we have to be careful. And again, um, as a former public health person, you know, a lot of us are working on a lot of trauma informed care work and, and trying to be trauma informed organizations. And you cannot be a trauma informed advocate if you are an authoritative leader. 
I don't care. You cannot be, you cannot push and champion that and just be a bully leader. You cannot do it. No. And, and what I find is people that are like that are so totally unaware of how they're acting and how they're, you know, people are responding to them. Well, in the article that, that I saw in the Spokane uh, Review, and it was an article by Sean Vestal, um, I think it was on August 4th, and I'll, I'll quote Sean, um, first sentence in the article, and I quote, at what point does poor management at the health district become a community health problem in and of itself? And that struck me, you know, just poor management actually being some kind of a disease and the ripple effects of authoritative styles of leadership, especially in a pandemic environment, were literally making people sick. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what is striking to me is the expertise that is walking out the door because they can no longer work there. Like you, like you, like yeah. you. You know, I mean, when you have an epidemiologist that can no longer work there and she's been there for 15 years and just has to leave, you can't replace that 15 years of experience just like that. I, um, I could never understand why it was so hard to hold these bully leaders accountable. Like you're willing to just let everybody else walk out as if they bring no value mm -hmm. and, but yet not hold the leader accountable for their behavior. And, um, you know, I, I'll give you an example. And I, you know, I talked about this in my Ted talk. Um, that rather holding my boss accountable, um, when I went to HR and was talking to them and trying to get help, they actually told me to fake a positive COVID test. And so that I could avoid her for two weeks. Like, don't, don't, re don't resign yet. Just fake a positive test so that you can stay home for two weeks so that you can avoid her. And then... And then come back and let's see how you feel. Let's see if you feel any different. Yeah, like that's a solution. <laughs> that was what I was given because yeah. my boss would not go to mediation. I had been asking for mediation and she wouldn't agree to it. And so that was the best that they could give me. Ah, just go home and rest. Fake a positive test. Go home and rest and come back and we'll see. We'll see if you feel better. You know, and that's one of the things I think that the structure of public health, and I know that there's other uh, organizations that are the same way, where if you have a board that hires that administrator, the only place for staff in management to go is to that board if they're having problems with that administrator. So if the board is on that person's side, mm -hmm. we don't have anywhere to go. You have no power. We have no power. Let's go ahead and lighten us up a little bit. And I want to segue into our 30 second hot seat. And there's always all kinds of really great nuggets of leadership that come out of that. So, um, so we could definitely 
continue this conversation. So we're going to do the 30 second hot seat. And so again, if you're new to this podcast, this is a staple that we do. Basically, I provide some prompts to my guest and, and it's a lightning round kind of a thing. And then at the end, I come back to one of my guests uh, answers and we sort of unravel that a little bit. And um, they're always really fun and provocative and kind of like, what in the world did that mean? So let's just have some fun with this. And uh, are you ready for the 30 second hot seat? I'm ready. The 30 second hot seat starts right The good. Adventures. The bad. Pet projects. The funny. Queen Bee. Oh, okay. I'm writing that one down. Uh, The ugly. Politics. Uh, The worst. Staff treatment. The best. Staff passion. Kick ass. Bravery. The lesson. The how. The redemption. Action Coalition. Okay. The cry. Respect. And the embarrassing. Jurassic Park. And stop. Yes. Thank you. All right. All right. Okay. I wrote down a lot. Um, all right. I, I, I got to ask about Queen Bee. <laughs> okay. So you said Queen Bee, and I can't remember to which one. Ah, uh, the funny. Let's talk about the Queen Bee. Yeah. And it's not Beyonce. We're not talking about Beyonce. No, no. Okay. All right. The managers and I used to have a little game about, you know, if I was Queen Bee, (laughs) (laughs) this is how I would do it, you know? And we would really have an in-depth discussion about the hows of a project or things. And it was good because then we realized, you know, kind of the, what we can do and what we can't do, what we can control and what we can't control. And then we would just say, okay, but we're not Queen Bee, and this is what we have to do. And so it kind of gave them some light way to talk about, you know, what we can control and what we can't control. And we're not Queen Bee. You know, we have a leader, and we have to respond to that leader. Um, How often did you do that? Um, Anytime there was pretty much a new project or something (laughs) that was coming down. (laughs) Yeah, that is a really good one because you know what it does? It also just gives you the opportunity to kind of be a free thinker is that sometimes we're always limited by budget or limited by whatever. And so we just kind of only see like right there two feet in front of us. And so it does give staff an opportunity to be a little bit more visionary. Yeah. And it also allows them to be queen bee. So, you know, it's not not a hierarchical thing. It's we're all equal and we all can have these ideas. I love that. All right. Speaking of Queen Bee then. (laughs) So if you were Queen Bee, you know, we talked a little bit. Well, we talked a lot about, um, you know, the culture and the importance of leadership. I would challenge that there needs to be a complete paradigm shift in a way that leaders lead today's workforce. It's changing. There's too many people, private sector, public sector, whatever. Um, There's too many people that have been impacted by the pandemic, wildfires, you know, the murder of George Floyd, and quite frankly, the bully leadership in our politics right now. Everyone has been impacted. I think 
I feel very strongly that that type of leadership has got to go. It cannot survive in our workplaces any longer. Our workforce has changed and there is a growing need for addressing the social and emotional state of our workforce right now. Mm-hmm. So with that said, Lindia, all right, so Queen B, mm-hmm. what are some solutions here, right? And so you did this letter. You asked the Board of Health to fire the administrator. You're retired. You're not there anymore. But what's the solution to this? She's still there. So what's the solution? What can we do? Yeah. So uh, the community in uh, our area really is rallying together and uh, they have formed. Can you can you stop for a second? What did you the community has? Yes. Interesting. So um, there's a lot of people that believe the way we do that bullying in a toxic environment is not okay, And they are crying out that she be removed. So they've formed this action coalition that um, is really trying to get more examples from staff. They're getting the union involved. They have gotten um, several articles in our local papers and really trying to make it very difficult for the board to keep her or at least not to do some type of action to hold her accountable. Uh, You do realize that perhaps if you had not gone public, that that probably wouldn't have happened. Would you agree? Yeah, I I think the firing of the health officer was kind of the moment that spurred everybody thinking that, hey, we're, this, that's not okay. And then a lot of other people stepping forward saying, yeah, well, there's a lot of other things going on too. So I can't take full credit, but, you know, I think that that letter definitely helped them focus on that, how she's doing the work. You know, even if we disagree about the firing of the health officer, how she went about it was wrong. Mm-hmm. And it was actually illegal Um, Her communication about it was awful. She never even um, came forward and talked to the staff who were really mourning that and being, um, you know, sympathetic about maybe she just made their job a lot harder. None of that. So that how, that process, those soft skills, that communication it's all, it's, it's really what the leaders have to do to make things go okay. So the community is rallying around this coalition or this council or this group. What's the end goal? Is the end goal is to get her removed? It is. Wow. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't, again, you all can't see me, but my jaw is kind of like down on the table a little bit. Um, Well, this just goes to reinforcing um, what I said to you in the beginning of this. I think that it takes a special level of courage um, to do what you did. And you knew that you had the credibility, you had 30 plus years of professional respect by your peers, by your colleagues, and you use that for 
saving, quite frankly, what I would say, saving the public health system in your community. And kudos to you. Mm -hmm. And thank you for your bravery. Thank you. That means a lot. You're very welcome. Before we go, you know, I'd like to maybe just end this show with a few questions. You know, I think that, and, and Lindia, I think I know the answers to all of these six questions for you, but um, I want the listeners out there to think about their organization, their business, their company right now, or one that maybe you've worked for in the past. And I want you to think about these six questions in your head and keep a mental note on the number of times that you say yes to these following questions mm -hmm. as we close out this podcast. Is this business emotionally safe? Is this business transparent in major decisions? Is this business collaborative across the entire enterprise? Is this business cognizant of the impacts of racial trauma, discrimination, and the culture experiences of staff? Does this business acknowledge and give space to personal trauma of staff? And does this business assure staff have voice across the organization? I'm curious, how many yeses did you have, Mendia? Zippo. <laughs> And most of the time, if you have four yeses or more, you're in pretty good shape of being a trauma-informed organization. Think about that. Those six things that I just mentioned are the pillars to trauma-informed organizations. So I leave you with that nugget yeah. and the idea that you scored zero. And was your organization a trauma-informed organization? Did they tout themselves as? Yep. We all had the training and, and uh, worked on that for many years. All right. Well, there we go. <laughs> Lindia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your honesty, your transparency, your courage, and your bravery. And um, you're a hero in my book, that's for sure. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And this was filled with nuggets and helpful information. And if you would like to have more information on the work that um, in my consulting and around trauma-informed organizations, um, you can always visit my website at www.dawnemmerichconsulting.com. And um, I, again, thank you for joining us.